Making Sense of Chaos is a podcast exploring anything and everything but dinner table talk. It's a conversation about death and dying, love, grief and hope. And the beauty and terror of realising that everyone you know will die. Ricky is a young woman who continually believes in herself. She believes in connection, openness. She also has a really special, persuasive demeanour about her. A calmness. Mixed with a frantic need to help people in need. She's fighting against the fear. The fear of our inevitable death. Her inevitable death. Her friend's inevitable death. And she's channeled that fear into something beyond incredible. As founder of Cancer Chicks Australia, Ricky has built a nationwide support group for women like herself, aged 20 to 30, with cancer. I was left feeling perplexed and astonished by Ricky's courage her story, and her articulations. And it's without a doubt that you'll be feeling the same. Ricky, thank you so much for giving us your time today. To get right into it, why don't you give us a brief overview of how how Cancer Chicks actually came into fruition, how... How it all started? So when I was when I was twenty years old, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage two, and um, I went through chemotherapy. And I really just was so desperate to meet anyone going through it um, that was young, that had any, you know, just just a young person with cancer who I could ask questions mm. like, you know, what is a biopsy? How do I draw an eyebrows? you know, everything. So for me, um, I contacted so many different charities and organizations. I contacted, you know, Canting, Cancer Council, Leukemia Foundation, Inflammer Australia, and they're all amazing charities and they're all uh, in their own right. But for me, I, I, then because of confidentiality and because hospitals aren't allowed to release names and whatnot, I actually wasn't able to get on to anyone except for an old man. <laughs> Which didn't really help me much. Yeah. So I sort of put it out there when people were offering me support and everything and they'd say, oh, we know someone, we know someone. And through word of mouth, I would meet a few people here and there. I had a friend from Melbourne. I met um, a girl in the hospital. Um, But young cancer patients are quite scarce. And um, especially, you know, you often do chemo with a lot of six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, or you um, Mm. you do these like events that are put on and you're the youngest person there by like 40 years. So um I started um just a Facebook group for the friends I'd made which were about five of us um or six of us and now we're a bit over 600 I think so it should be around that yeah so it was really accidental in the end but um as it grew and and as the conversation grew with with these amazing women um it we it just took off it's been like almost a year now and we're yeah we're we speak every day and they and we've put on amazing retreats and things that I'm really proud of and yeah well well so do you remember I'm curious when you first started that Facebook group 
Do you remember what the first posts were on that group? I do. I think um, the first post was from a young girl. I think she was about 17 or 18 and she said, um, hi there, I just found out that I, I think it was, I just found out I'm unable to have children and, or, and um, all of a sudden everyone started writing back, so, so am I, like I feel the exact same. I was just told, you know, I, that I'm infertile. And these are all really young girls. You know, we get every day we get messages like I find, I, you know, I have two weeks left to live or I have, I've been told I only have a month left, you know, or, you know, I, I had to abort my child or whatever it was. And, and now I'm infertile. I don't have time to freeze my eggs. It's just the most horrific stories that you hear. But then at the same time, you hear amazing stories of, of girls who made best friends through the group and, you know, where the, the fact that a lot of these girls had found each other and all of a sudden they weren't insecure anymore. They were able to you know take off their wigs or or they would give each other wigs or whatever it was. So, you know, there's a lot of hardship that goes through the group, but I think that's what makes them so close and that's what connects them is is their is their hardships. And I think when you start a conversation with such an open post and when you mm. um when you yeah, when you begin the conversation in that way it only sort of goes on to be open from there and it only go, it goes on to be um a really really close group at the level of support so you've talked about the amazing job you're doing connecting everyone together is what does what does the support look like day to day or week to week how, how are you supporting these 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 other women i i've won like grants recently and I was able to take 16 girls on holidays um because for them one of the things that they've asked and one of the big things for them is that they meet each other in person you know they spent the whole year talking to Mm. each other and making best friends but they haven't had the opportunity to actually meet in real life and the funniest thing is once you put them in a room together they all know who they are without even giving their names Mm. you know they all it's it's an amazing thing that they like you know instantly hug each other they're crying it's just It's something, it's like they've known each other for years. And I think it's funny for me, even without cancer chicks, when I was sick and I looked sick, I'd be like walking down the street, I'd have strangers run up and hug me and just start crying. And, you know, they, and I'd know, we didn't even have to say it, but I'd know that they were a survivor too. There's something unspoken between cancer survivors because um, it's a huge journey and a lot of people don't really understand what it, what it is to undertake it um, until they've been through it or seen it firsthand. I was going to say, Ricky, I'm I'm interested in in your journey. Just going back before the group, and that maybe the moment. And I mean, I'm relatively naive in terms of how the process would would look like. Um, oh. In terms of becoming, you know, whether you're notified and and what that even looks like, and sure. you know, that experience was for you. Um, you're alone in that, and I think that most people are, and I think I was. Most people who haven't um, seen cancer firsthand you know, just assume it's like the faults in our starts. <laughs> so um, yeah. I think, you know, it's a really important conversation to ha- have had. I um, was pretty healthy. I was, you know, I was exercising, playing touch football, and I was I worked, I was interning in, in media. I sort of ended, I didn't really want to do psychology as a degree that I, was, that I had started, so I needed that for a semester and dropped it because I wanted to transition into something I enjoyed more. Um, so my life is pretty good and I was happy and healthy and everything. So for me, this really came as a shock. Um, I woke up and I, uh, felt sick and I was actually taking the day off work cause it was a Jewish holiday. Um, it was Yom Kippur, which is like a 
spiritual day and it's actually quite a sad day so um you know I have quite a lot of connect like I feel quite a connection to that day where I never once felt that um mm. but I woke up and I was taking off work anyway and I went to a chocolate shop and I went to my GP and I you know thought well if I don't get the GP to confirm that I'm sick because you meant to fast no one will believe that I'm actually sick <laughs> well so I was like I better go just to, to everyone that was legit you know so um I went and he said and I, I said to him you know I feel like I have a cold um and I've got a sore throat and he said it sounds like you have a cold but if you're not feeling any better um then go get your throat your, your neck and throat checked um with an ultrasound if you if you feel like it so um, we really didn't think much of it, really. It was, it, I started feeling better, like, within three days. But because I wasn't feeling better the next day, I went by myself to get an ultrasound, just thinking, that sounds fun. Like, you know, you hear about women who are pregnant that get ultrasounds. So, like, I didn't even take my parents. I didn't take anyone. Um, I was 20. So I went and, um, and I did that. And uh, the woman brought in the doctor to have a look. And I still hadn't thought anything of it. Um, but he said, oh, we might just give you more scans because we can't see anything there, which was which I found out later they actually could. They didn't want to scare me at the time. Um, yeah. And then they gave me a CT scan straight afterwards and um, I could see through the window that all these, um, all the the technicians and everything were looking at my screens and they all seemed quite strange and the doctor was meant to see me afterwards. So I had messaged my mum something like, mum, this is kind of weird. I think something's up. Um, and in my head I was like, I have cancer. <laughs> Because I was like, why would it, why would mm. everyone be so strange? I don't feel like this is normal. And what other reason could it be than to have some sort of growth? And for me, the only idea of growth would have been cancer. So um, I was in the waiting room and they said, you know, the doctor's not going to see you anymore. You have to go back to your GP tonight at 8 p.m., which I thought was strange as well because how often do you see a doctor at 8 p.m. at night and um, that they would book it in for me. So I went with my mum to the GP that night and he said, I booked you into an ear, nose and throat specialist tomorrow um, at St. Vincent's Hospital. Go, it's, it's urgent. And um, she sort of pushed me out the room while we were leaving and she said to him, should we be worried? And he said, 50-50. Um, so I knew it was bad. I knew she'd said something to him because we'd gone for dinner and she left and I saw through the window, she thought I didn't notice, but she was crying. So I knew it wasn't good. Um, and we we went to the doctor and they um, they stuck, stuck a camera up my nose. They said, you've got to do biopsies, which I had no idea what that was. But they, they said to me after the second um, biopsy, we know it's cancer. We just don't know which one. It could be um, thymoma, lymphoma or Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I said, okay, so what's the worst one? And he said thymoma. And I said, and what's the best one? And he said Hodgkin's lymphoma. So my first instinct was, okay, I have thymoma because that way I can't be disappointed, you know, if you... Gosh, that's an amazing thought pattern to have. Yeah, I think I was like that from the start, yeah. You did that from the start by assuming you had cancer as well. I think my mm. in instincts was, you know, if you assume the worst, you can't be disappointed. You can be, like, it's hope for the mm. best, but expect the worst kind of thing, so... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've always been that way. Some people handle it, actually everyone handles it quite differently, I came to learn. Um, mm. You know, I had... So one family member who was completely like, you're fine, everything's fine. And another family member that was like, this is the worst day of my life, even though we knew nothing. So everybody, I came to know, every, I thought that everybody would react to, to you know, a diagnosis or all these things in, in the same way that I would. But I found that, you know, 
some family members wouldn't stop cracking jokes and the other one, you know, it, some just pretended they didn't know what cancer was in the first place. So, you know, it's really, it's really personal thing. And I, and you do learn that and you do try to manage all, everybody else's emotions. And that's quite a, um, that's quite a juggling, like that's quite a difficult thing to do while you're afraid yourself. Um, yeah. And I imagine a bit of a facade comes in there as well that you have to put up this um, sort of braveness that you're not really yeah. feeling just to comfort others um, to to, yeah. to manage their emotions basically did you find yourself ever doing that yeah actually I w- went back to read my old diaries to prepare for this conversation just because um, my memories when you've got a lot of emotions you do forget a lot of things going on at the time um, and I, I actually had written that I felt like I was putting out fires from everybody else's emotions just to keep everyone calm and then in the private of my room or whenever I was alone, I was, um, I found that I would let myself freak out and let myself just feel whatever I was feeling. So, you know, there is that sort of fear that you're going to scare your family members. And that, that in a way is why cancer has been so useful because, um, people, we feel, we feel this, you know, it's already stressful enough for them. We don't want to make it harder for them, um, for the people around us. So we just need to, tell you know other cancer patients I'm scared to die I'm you know all these things that they don't want to even consider because it's too frightening um and we have to just kind of deal with our mortality on our own um which in a way um makes you stronger and I think for me has taught me a lot about myself and my strength so you know there's yeah so, so Ricky, in terms of that growth, when Maddie mentioned that we were privileged enough to have you on, um, I, you know, you, your age sort of set me back a little bit in terms of what you've been able to do and your emotional intelligence and your ability to connect mm-hmm. with, with people, formulate a group while sit with the, you know, the, the emotional and what may be mental turmoil that you're going through. Um, mm-hmm. So, how Thank how's you. that? Yeah, how, how, but but how is it? How have you how have you balanced it all? So I, um, if we go even further back, I um, when I was in high school, my mother, my mum, my younger brother, and I moved to Canada, um, and my dad had to stay here and work with my older brother. We moved there um, because there was a school there for special needs, and at the time, my brother needed it. He's great now. Um, but you know, I spent two years there with just my mum, and then I came back, and it was just me and my dad for two years. And I was um, seven. Uh, no, I left uh, in year going into year nine, and I came back in year eleven. And that's quite pivotal years, um, you know, to be to be moving countries and to be starting over and over <laughs> again. And I think for me, that matured me quite quickly. I think that was um, it was quite difficult trying to, you know understand the difference in culture and understand new friends and and also miss my parents and my family and I think um because of that I was able to sort of understand adversity where a lot of my friends who had sort of never um had changed before would have probably struggled a bit more um so I think but I, I definitely grew a lot from this I think I learned a lot about you know uh vanity <laughs> I learned a lot about who's the right people in your life and who will stick around and who won't and and just you know there's there's um on that note you know there's a lot of people like I mentioned that that people deal with it differently a lot of people can't deal with it at all a lot of my closest some of my best friend 
couldn't deal with it at all. Uh, they they just you know shut off from me from the very start. Um, and now you know they're back, and I don't resent them for that. You know, I I know that everyone's got their own personal journey with cancer, and they associate it um, with different stories that they've experienced themselves because everybody's got um, one story that you know everybody's affected by cancer in some way or another. There there are other things in life, you know. Um, reciprocated loves all these little things that do build up your strength that people don't really accredit a lot of people for and that that help you when when you do have some sort of volcano like this that people do um, actually consider so for me um, those 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 little things in my life that I'd gone through before definitely helped me cope through, through this I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for but no yeah no. Uh, I, I think you explained it more, more than enough. And I think that, so your, your ability to, I mean, when we're talking about death and dying, they, these are things that are, I imagine are not almost stigmatized and, and not spoken about. Um, how, how do you comprehend and how have you learned to understand, you know, dealing with your own mortality and, and, and the possibility of, of not being here anymore? Um, wow, what a question. Um, it's a good one. It's definitely a good one. I think, um, I mean, I don't have the answers to, to it, but I do, um, everybody, I think, I think you're right. There is so much stigma that comes along with, with death. I think we don't talk about it. I think we are afraid of it. I mean, what's not to be afraid of is, you know, but, um, I watched, I watched recently, I don't know if you saw, um, Ricky Gervais's uh Gervais Gervais um afterlife and it's a really I I mean it's a great show if you haven't seen it you should watch it but it just encapsulates the idea of living um even though we die and that you should make the best of every moment and I I felt that throughout my treatment and recently with my health scare it's a big reminder that you know we need to celebrate every moment and we need to you know surround ourselves with people who make us happy and who enrich us and I think for me it's not so much the concept of death I don't I'm not a religious person I I'm spiritual in other ways and I I definitely become more spiritual from having cancer but I you know everybody's got different answers whether there's an afterlife whether there's a heaven or hell or all these things I don't really care about the um, intricacies of it I know that there's an end and for that reason I focus more on the quality of the life and there's so many friends I know that have said to me you know well I mean I have many friends that are terminal I have many friends that have lived past the date that they were in um and it's so weird to say that I have many friends that are terminally you know ill um because it's not a normal thing I forget that and I'm quite actually numb to the idea of a lot of of problems that come along with cancer but one of my closest closest friends has stage 4 melanoma and she um you know we she talks about it and she talks about it as though you know I hope I have time for it and I've never had to have that I've had many occasions where I thought I would die and recently when when I went into my emergency surgery because I was bleeding internally and no one sort of realized I um heard the surgeons say we you know she could bleed out she could die um which i probably they thought i was on drugs and i couldn't hear them but i couldn't i think because i'm not but um you know and and you know i'm 
my I, I saw a psychologist about it and she says I have PTSD so you know I'm still dealing with the idea of death and I'm still dealing with um, the repercussions of it um, but all of these experiences that I've had and meeting other people who have had it worse just remind me that you know we should we should not take our life for granted we should try to celebrate every little thing for me whether it's actually you know getting out of pajamas some days and going for a walk if I'm physically able or you know being able to drive again I've tried to enjoy those moments as much as I can and you know every birthday every ridiculous anniversary you know try to do something memorable live life to the fullest that's my motto I really feel that um yeah it's more about life than death I guess yeah more about life than death yeah that's so well put Rick you did mention spirituality there and how the diagnosis did in fact bring you closer to spirituality Mm. I, I would love to hear more about that um, so I don't even think I mentioned it, but I'm Jewish. I um, am very proud to be Jewish. I'm traditionally Jewish. Um, in in my view, I, I love the community. I love my heritage and I love the culture. Um, that's what I feel most connected to. My grandfather, my dad's dad was a Holocaust survivor. He was in Auschwitz and also Mudhausen camp. And for me, um, when... Um, when I got sick, I had so many rabbitsons and rabbis reach out, you know, and wow. the whole community. I didn't know half the people dropping gift to, gifts to my house. I just was bombarded. I couldn't, it took me weeks to open every single message I got to, you know, my house was a forest. It was just the most ridiculous over-the-top experience. You know, it was everyone I walk around the streets now and people who know me um that I don't really know just based on being Jewish have come up to me and you know say the most wonderful things so I'm still experiencing the secondhand effects of it all but um so I would say when it comes to feeling more spiritual I'd say I'm definitely more um emotionally connected to um, the Jewish community um to my heritage I always you know, everyone keeps calling me an inspiration. That was such a big thing for me. And so many cancer people sort of resent the idea that they're strong and that they um, are these things because they feel that mm-hmm. this wasn't something that they were able to choose and that this isn't something they could control. And so why should they be, um, they call it inspiration porn, where like we <laughs> are people's like, we, like when people need inspiration, they're their poor. And we are the, you know, which is true. And, you know, in, it helps in some ways. It, it doesn't in others. Um, but for me, I definitely struggled with that initially. And then I thought about, okay, so who is an inspiration to me and who is the strongest person to me? And then I always think about my grandfather. And he didn't choose to have the circumstances of the Holocaust mm-hmm. thrown on him. Um, but it was how he dealt with it and how um, he managed to create a wonderful life and and a wonderful family from that so for me I just sort of accepted that okay well maybe that is the same for me and I can accept that title so when you mentioned an inspiration the the first thing that I think of is sort of legacy and how you'd want people to to view you um, if you were gone or even even now Um, you know what would you say about that um I think you'd probably feel the exact same way as I would, even though it's hard to sort of put it into words. It's it's a frightening thing, especially for someone who feels they haven't lived long enough or haven't done the things that they've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to be a mum. I've always wanted to 
you know, have a, a huge family. I'd want all these things. Um, and the biggest thing, the biggest, the biggest challenge with mortality for me right now is accepting that the loss of some of my friends. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I lost a friend recently and she was in remission with me and she didn't want, because we always talk about how scary it is every time we see someone relapse because we think it's like that's one of the biggest challenges with cancer this is when someone relapsed, you think, oh, shit, that could be me. Um, and mm. it is a reminder, you know, every time you hear one of your friends have relapsed or, or just someone you don't even know. And I think um, we talk about that all the time. And my first cancer friend ever that I met at the hospital who helped me start Cancer Chicks and told me I should and all these things, um, her name's Natasha. She was, she was amazing. Um, she didn't want to tell me that she'd relapsed because she knew I would feel that way. So well, we'd been... Yeah, so we'd been speaking um, and a week later her friends called to say she died and I was, I think for me that was harder because I didn't emotionally prepare for it. Um, no. And I think you now even when I was younger, um, I, I wasn't at a psychologist, I just spoke to one and I said, you know, what's harder people, when, when you lose someone, what's harder with grief? Is it like a slow death or is it a sudden death? And she said sudden ones because you don't have that closure um, and you don't get to say goodbye. And that was how I felt. I think um, I've almost, as much as I can, prepared for some of the girls I know that are stage four. And, you know, initially you try to reserve yourself from getting close to those girls just because you're like, shit, they're a ticking time bomb. Um, I emotionally should not have to handle that. But in life, you don't get to choose who you click with. And um, it's the same with cancer. You can't just monitor who you um, are going to get along with and who you're not. So in the end, you do. You do. I have a lot of friends and you, you have a lot of people in your life that you really love that you know are going to die any minute now and um, any year from now or whatever it is. So, um, I mean, I can't even imagine the emotional side of building a relationship with someone on such a deep level and you know that's on top of the already present unspoken bond that you talked about when you meet someone else with cancer yeah and then realizing that they're not going to make it um I mean it's almost as if your your lines are starting in the same place both getting diagnosed with cancer and then the lines have just diverged and yeah, their line has completely changed direction out of nowhere, and they're going to die, and you have to process that. Um, I, I mean, what what is that experience like for you? You know, I went to I went to Natasha's. Um, she had like a celebration of life in, instead of a funeral. She had like just it was like a party. We all like went in colors and she like put on a concert because she was on The Voice. So she had all these celebrity friends. She was a singer. So, you know, there was Delta Dan, there's all these singers. And it was just like we were crying, but we were all singing. And it was such a great representation of her life. And it was such a um, spiritual thing for me. And I think, um, you know, you speak to these girls and I, I was there. I sat in a row with other cancer chicks we all looked like cancer patients or just out of it and we all looked like she did and and everybody you know, I thought no one's going to know us there we'll just blend in and hide or whatever and um everyone there was so grateful that we existed for her and that we that she had 
people to talk to because we didn't realize but all the things she'd been telling us she hadn't been telling anyone else so they thought she wasn't opening up and um, you know we regularly talk about death we regularly talk about um you know I try not to sometimes say you know I try not to leave people on bad notes because you never know if you're going to see them again and you know all these things that you know we say like you know we say that but they literally you know could die so Mm. and what's so crazy to me is like a lot of the girls that I know that are terminal um don't have didn't lose their hair they didn't they have a treatment for them so they look like you and I um they look they have long hair and they look healthy but they're not treated like a cancer patient and in some ways that's a good thing and in other ways they don't they don't get that um that sense of the world being kind to you just because you have cancer mm. you know um because that is definitely present you know everywhere you go everybody treats you like they either pity you or they give you free shit so it's a weird it's a weird thing um Mm. and they who have it worse aren't getting that same treatment and they're not being spoken to in the same way and they and they are ones that I often you know they don't have anything to look forward to they're just stuck at home being sick um and I think that's so unfortunate so that's what my goal initially was with cancer chicks was to try to give them something to enjoy and and to help them in that way yeah god that that is just amazing the work you're doing ricky um you know i'm i'm wondering with these girls who are in fact terminal how is the idea of death well not even the idea the concrete very soon to be imminent reality of death how's that brought up in conversation what does that look like um i still you know one of my best friends like i mentioned you know, she, uh, she's Natalie Fornasia. She's um, she's got melanoma, and you know, we met through the retreat I took her on. And um, for me, that's been the hardest thing. I, I she talks about it um, in conversation, in passing conversation. Never really sit down and have a chat about it. So uh, she often is numb to the idea of it, and it, and for me, it's a shock every time because I forget. You do forget. You're talking to a friend. You don't. You're not constantly mm. thinking about it, and then you're reminded like oh shit like she's not on the outside with me and there's a lot to do with survivor guilt um that's a big conversation and when and when does that come up when would survivor's guilt come up with you so what happens with cancer is you know everyone's there when you first diagnosed you get bombarded and all these strangers and everyone you know is just there and then you're going through treatment and they slowly whittle off and there's no one there and then if you find out you're cancer free everyone's there and then in remission, it's radio silence. Um, and for some of these girls and for me, um, that transition from, oh, my God, what just happened to me, trying to actually um, internalise everything and trying to, um, like, you have this cognitive delay where you um, just feel like, okay, so I just went through a whirlwind. My whole mind, body, everything was just trying to keep up with the times. And now what do I do? Because Everyone's gone and I don't know how to start life again, you know. And so when you go through these, like mentally, I think for a lot of people, and I think maybe for me too, um, remission is harder mentally than being in treatment because even though there's that fear of dying removed, um, there's a radio silence and there's loneliness and there's this um, I'm bald now and 
you know, I don't look like I did. I don't feel like I did. Nobody's there here anymore. You know, you really just feel this isolation and confusion about who you are and your own identity. And you don't want to be defined as a cancer patient, but you also don't know whether that's something to be proud of. It's just, you're really a confusing time. And so for cancer chicks, you know, the girls who are in remission and the girls who are terminal or still in treatment, um, you can't, if they feel this, um, a fear of talking about the struggles they're going through on the other side because they don't know if their friends will get there. Um, and so when I recently did a retreat um, with the, I, I won, an, I won um, a grant from Westfield. They do a local hero grant and it's the most amazing initiative. And with that money, I, I, I mentioned I took some girls on holidays. I took 16 girls and I tried to give them the best time I possibly could. I got so many charities to like donate things and, you know, put on really fun events for them, which was so awesome. Um, but one of the things that I did at the very beginning was I brought in this amazing w- woman, Wendy Jokum, who came and spoke. She's actually a mother of my boyfriend, but she is like a, t- a, a personal development coach. She does group bonding and women bonding and just she goes to amazing companies. And she, yeah, and she, I, she said, is there anything um, you guys are worried about? And I said, well, that's one of my worries is that we, some of the girls will feel too afraid to open up. And a lot of the girls said, yeah, me too, me too, me too. And the girls that are terminal said, you know, you forget that most of our terminal cancers came after we had um, a diagnosis that was similar to yours. And we felt the same things you guys felt in remission. And we wanted to speak about it then too. So we are the most understanding and we won't judge you for it. And we actually, you know, feel the same. So after that, you know, that sort of survivor's guilt goes away and you're like, okay. And everybody's, they're just, I think, what makes a cancer survivor or fighter so amazing is that they're very understanding. Um, you know, they're, they're sensitive in that, you know, you probably shouldn't say anything, you know, that reminds them that they're dying to them that often, but they, they definitely are so understanding when it comes to pain and when it comes to um, trying to be kind. I think that's something that, that they don't take for granted because it's thing people are afraid to do. They often just pretend they don't know, or they often just don't want to acknowledge you. Yeah. Yeah. And Ricky, what's going through my head whilst you're describing this is just how much it seems to fast track any fears about being vulnerable that, yeah. you know, we all have when we're taking life for granted and whether that's, I don't know, taking a while to, respond to someone's message so we don't seem too eager <laughs> so true. yeah or is it both hot enough or is it too you know too big yes exactly yeah exactly exactly no I I can it's true it's so true I think um it definitely grounds you it's like well if you didn't know it like here's so like let's just remove your eyebrows Let's just get rid of your eyelashes. Let's make you constipated or with diarrhea or whatever. And we're just going to like throw it all at you. And then you juggle that and tell us if you care about what hair products you're using. You know, it's like, <laughs> just like, it's true. We don't, we don't really, um, I mean, obviously we're, we're teenage girls and we always go back to that, you know, do I look good in this photo or whatever, but you are like, it's not so important. And, um, you know, the little things aren't important. I was, I used to be, you know, oh my God, that person's too intimidating to talk to, or, you know, like really care about the scene of a party. Like now I'm just like, who cares? Like, you know? Yeah. And that who cares attitude, what, where else does that seep into? 
Um, you know, uh, what I can say on that point is that when it comes to being irritable and all these things, I definitely do not take it out on strangers. Um, and I feel that you ne like what I learned from this experience is that you'd never know what people are going through. And that for me, when I was in treatment, a lot of people called me up to say, I actually have cancer and I've been doing it secretly. And I've been wearing a wig. Um, I had that happen to me on multiple occasions. Um, a lot of mothers, a lot of just people who don't want it to be publicized, who don't want to be defined by it. And for that, that was such an open, eye-opening experience for me because I thought, shit, like, this is so much to go through and to do it on your own is even is baffling to me. That is, like, serious, true. I just could not um, actually internalise that. Like, for me, the community and just being noticed and just being told, like, we care was such a huge thing for me. So, um, you know, I've come to learn that, like, you know what someone's going through, whether it's a bartender or your barista or the guy driving in traffic next to you so um I yeah. Try, yeah for that reason I'm I'm very I'm really big on just being kind to people um I really think that's something that's so important in life yeah and it's reminding me of a quote that I read which you said in an interview storms make trees take deeper roots it's a it's a good one <laughs> um it's similar to another quote that I really liked which is like without rain there would be no flowers like when like when someone's dealing with adversity and when something happens in your life, um, you know, something beautiful does come out of it. And I really do feel that. I feel there was a lot that came out of me getting cancer and there was a lot that I learned from it that I, I, I like myself and who I am now more than I did beforehand um, just based on oh, yeah. my new, you know, what I learned, the outlook I have on life. And I think um, it's really true that those sort of storms do give you deeper roots and do make you – um, more beautiful and strong so I'm I'm really yeah I do feel that for sure and Ricky so I've got an interesting question I've been thinking as you've been speaking um <laughs> you, yes classic um I, I've used the word fear of fear of remission and mm. and we, we've we talked about the aspects of death and then the also, also the aspects of fearing that the cancer could come back. I'm wondering if if the, if they if they're different, you know, if the fear of remission versus the fear of cancer versus the fear fear of death. Yeah. They're all somehow linked, but they're all so different. Yeah. But for me, which is so funny, um I just find this whole experience funny looking back on it. It's literally uh, about a month ago, I had to go for my 6-month scan. I get checkups every 6 months. I got my scan and I thought everything's fine because this the scanners and the technicians, everyone was normal. Um, and because of COVID, I wasn't able to go see my oncologist. He had to call me. So he calls me up and I really expected nothing. And he says, I'm really sorry, Ricky, we've seen something there. And my first instinct is, okay, the cancer's back. Um, and I just, you know, I started crying and, and I just could not breathe. I just really felt, the. F it's so funny. One of the first instincts I had, which is the most ridiculous thing ever, is that shit I'm about to lose my hair again, <laughs> which is so stupid because it's like, well, you could die too, but like that's insane, you know. The minute that he, I, I got off the phone, I could not speak to anyone. I just went for a run. Um, not that I can run far because my chemo affected my lungs. So even though physically I wasn't tired, my breath would, you know, 
cut out. And I love telling this. I don't love telling stories. It's not a great story. It's kind of an awful story. But I love tragic comedies, which is the same thing as the show I was telling you about, which is like yeah. something so tragic you can only laugh at it. And I was like going for this run and I had stopped like once to cry. And then like I just could not stop crying because the song on my iPod changed and like everybody loves Passenger. Who doesn't love Passenger? So like running down the streets of Bellevue Hill I'm hysterically crying and I think because coronavirus not many people around this woman driving her car stops the car with her son they're chasing after me with tissues screaming at me they they don't know what's going on I like end up on the floor like still hysterically crying I my lungs are like bursting so I'm just like trying to explain to them what's going on I'm like and they have no idea what's wrong with me they're like trying to pass me tissues from a meter and a half half away because of social distancing it was just so ironic I, like I couldn't tell yeah. her like oh I think the cancer's back she was like everybody she was so confused she's telling me to call lifeline like it was just <laughs> so <laughs> I've never in my life I, I'm so dramatic and ridiculous but for me it was just like I'm just going to run away from the cancer and the funniest part was my boyfriend was like he saw me run out the house he was so confused and then my mom sort of caught him up and he was in his pajamas, in thongs, running around the streets trying to find me and find my friends. Well, I'm like hysterically <laughs> crying on the floor with some stranger a meter and a half away. <laughs> yeah, but that was that's really it. That. Like, it's just fight or flight, man. You just don't know what how you're going to react. That is amazing. So, what ended up happening? What was the outcome? Um, I I had to go through. Um, I thought it was going to be a biopsy. I was admitted to hospital two weeks ago. So what they said was they're going to turn off my right lung and they're going to just try to go in and do a biopsy and they thought it was likely to be my thymus you know the stories that I'm telling you because I also find this one funny and ridiculous um but before this they put off my surgery a day and I was really angry and confused because I just wanted it over and done with and they said that there was something wrong with my that they did a lot of tests that night um and they said something was wrong with your blood test and um you know they weren't really allowed to show me anything but I met a really lovely nurse and I was like please can you just explain it to me it's like I don't really understand it, but she brought in this paper, and on the paper it said that my blood, like you have blood clotting factors, and like whatever it meant, there was like nine factors, and like my factor eight was thirty-seven. I don't know what that means. Nobody knows. Like she didn't know what it means. All I knew was my that was the case, and that for like for that reason they couldn't give me a lot of oxygen when I go into surgery. That was all I knew. So anyway, so. Um, I'm in ICU, which is really awful and scary. I don't know if you um, know much about ICU, but I didn't, and I hated it. You're only allowed a visitor for half an hour a day because of coronavirus, um, and only one visitor is allowed to come throughout your stay. Um, and what was meant to be a two- to three-day stay um, turned into an eight-day stay. So um, I was in ICU, and I thought that I was sweating under my right um, breast but I because um, my procedure was on the left side. And I was actually bleeding out. So it was like a load of everywhere. And I was like, shit, like what the fuck is happening? Um, and I'm pressing the button for, you know, a nurse to come and no one was coming, which was really scary. And then eventually like this nurse showed up and she was a newbie and she was just like, I, I don't know what to do. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do. Maybe to get a doctor. <laughs> you know, it was just like somebody take control here because I'm bleeding out. Um yeah. And she was like, oh, I don't want to interrupt them. They get kind of nervous. I'm like, just please, can you interrupt these doctors? Yeah. I don't want to die here. So she was like, okay. So she like, interrupted the doctors and they like came running. They're like, why didn't you call us? 
which was like you know the most stressful time they literally stitched me up on the table um I didn't even have time to morphine enough like it was just really a lot and then um they brought in this physio and she's like let's go for a walk and I was like I can't even sit up I was like what are you on (laughs) I was like this is I was like, this is insane. I was like, I can't sit up. I'm not going for your walk. She was like, no, I believe in you. Oh, my God. She's like the human version of one of those annoying inspirational quotes. Yeah, no, she no, but she thought I just needed this, like, inspo to, like, get me walking. You know, you can go for a job. <laughs> yeah, so she's going on and on. I think I actually laughed at her. I don't do that. But I was like, you don't understand. I can't sit up. There is no way I'm going for a stroll with you. Like, not happening. And she, was, she gave up eventually and they decided they're going to take me to regular care. So I got up there. I think I fell asleep for like an hour. My mum was able to come and she was there. And, the, and then I was like, I need the toilet. And they were like, just go. And I was like, I can't walk. You need to get a bedpan. You can carry me there. I don't know. So they put me on his bedpan. And the minute I sat down, um, I started feeling faint. So I was like, I'm fainting. And they heard me from outside because I was like, I get stage fright. You can't be in the room, whatever. They left the room. I was like, I'm fainting. And they came running back in the room. And um, they had all these doctors running in. Apparently, I looked like I was dying. I remember, like, seeing my mum freaking out with this beautiful nurse named Padma. Shout out to Padma. Love you. Um, She's awesome. So anyway, they took me into an emergency surgery because I was bleeding internally out. and it was just such a scary experience. But there was this rave song back when I was, like, living in Canada. And it's this isn't the funny part, okay? I'm getting to the end of the story here. I know it's a very long story. Um, Anticipation. Anticipation. Yeah, yeah. So there's this rave. I, there was this rave song. And I wasn't a raver, but, like, my friends were. So I knew this song. And at the beginning, and it was about how people take ketamine um, when they go to raves. And the beginning of it was like the scientific definition of ketamine, which I had <laughs> memorized. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I can't for the life of me. So I'm on all these drugs. They're like giving me drugs. They're about to put me out. And they're like, do you know your name? I'm like, it's Ricky. And they're like, where are you? It's Vince's hospital. Someone's like, give her oxygen. And I just like turned to the woman. I was like, you can't. My factor eight blood levels are 38. Like, <laughs> And they were like, oh, shit, like, we're going to knock her out. They're like, how did you know that? Like, thank you so much. And then, <laughs> and then the guy's like, we're going to give her ketamine. I'm like, it's a hydrochloric tranquilizer used for veterinary purposes for the sedation of animals. And they're, like, looking at me like I'm insane because I'm on these drugs. And that's the last that's thing I remember. Fucking I amazing. How good is that? I know. And, that's <laughs> I, and, and literally, I know this is so morbid, but I was like, imagine if this is the last thing I say. <laughs> it's so fucked up. It's dying well, It's not a bad thing to say. I know. It was. I looked really smart. <laughs> How good is that? Anyway, so that's the story. And um, in the end, I had two major surgeries. They collapsed my lung twice. It's just been a huge, like, crazy recovery for me. And I'm still sort of trying to um, come to terms with everything because it's kind of, you know, you, you do have to, you, you need hindsight to really understand what's happening like for your, your mind and your emotions to catch up with each other I mean it's like what's happening to your body is going at a much faster pace yeah. than what your mind can possibly handle yeah. and your brain is just constantly trying to catch up I mean how do you deal with that constant emotional roller coaster it's yeah I agree and I think for me with coronavirus one of the hardest things for me is that I feel like I'm back in treatment because 
you know, I'm stuck mm. at home without visitors, living in pajamas, um, you know, feeling like everyone's pitying me and feeling sore from recovery. So it's just for me, I in a way have felt like the progress of what I've done in the last year, which physically um, was I'd come a long way for me um, from not being able to walk at all, walk upstairs because of the chemo to, you know, finally like going for a run, even though my lungs weren't quite there. and then you know, to having to feel like I can't walk much anymore again. So for me, like, it's just been a bit of a mental game um, with understanding that I have to take it easier on myself again. I'm interested in in the moment when when you're struggling to walk or struggling to do the things that you you would have probably done with ease prior, where, where does that, are you, where does your mind go to? Are you, are you thinking this, this is, I'm deteriorating to the point where this 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 could end very quickly are you are you thinking about the future or are you just trying to take it you know one step in front of each yeah um i'm not i think yeah i'm literally trying to survive you take it day by day you uh Mm -hmm. when when i'm in treatment i try only only when they sort of broke the news and when i hadn't been experiencing the physical pain was i thinking about my mortality but i think when you're actually in it literally just trying to survive um and so when I I couldn't walk or talk I had a lot of mouth ulcers and um I couldn't you know talk there was you know you do I you know there's a lot of moments where I do feel um traumatized from and you can't really ask for help because you can't type because you I had bone marrow problems so my thumbs and my movement was really like bad so it's literally everything um is going downhill and you just don't, you know, you're just trying to survive. Um, for me, the, the thought process was guilt. I had so much guilt about people taking care of me and I had so much guilt about my boyfriend um, and I, I didn't even, he was like there for the first few days, you know, I was doing great and he was like, how are you? And, you know, he was so desperate to come and I was begging his friends to take him off my hands so that he wouldn't see how bad I was. Um, but he, he eventually came anyway. And, um, he, you know, it, he, it, I felt so much, I felt like I was ruining everything for everyone. You know, everyone dropped everything for my cancer. My mum was studying and we'd just like given, like she'd gotten courage, you know, to stop. Um, she got the courage to start again, um, at, at uni. And that was such a big thing. And then having that guilt that she, you know, had to stop that just to take care of her daughter. And she never went back to that or, you know, whether it was Stevie missing out on every weekend, which is my boyfriend, um, missing out on all his weekends, um, to take care of a sick girlfriend or, you know, or, you know, this whole, it was just a lot of guilt. Um, in, in those moments, you, you're like in pain and trying to focus on how to reduce the pain. Um, but you're mainly just wanting to tell everyone else to just like, you know, you just want to put everyone else at ease. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, which seems amazing to me because, you know, in the midst of this immense physical, psychological, emotional pain, the first thing on your mind is your family and friends thinking about their responses to what you're going through, whether they're okay, how they're dealing. I I think when you have a family that you know are willing, family and friends who are willing to drop everything for you and you come to learn that through getting cancer, you know, you do feel it's like, why, like why, you know, it's, it's, 
yeah, it's so hard to explain because um, just it's so bizarre how people move things for a, a sick kid. Um, mm. It's really an amazing thing. And I say this to a lot of people that, you know, there's so many causes that I think should deserve the same amount of attention, like people with mental disabilities, people, you know, who are sick, who have anorexia, whatever it is, whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever it is, people are so quiet about it. We know, but we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to say, hey, I heard this happened to you and I'm so sorry. Um, you know, mm-hmm. We don't want to drop over things to their houses. We don't, we just pretend it didn't happen. But when someone gets cancer, you know, everybody is, you know, so, you know, I heard this, you know, I'm in your face, like, you know, and I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's wonderful that people are so full about it but then I think you know why don't other causes get that attention um why are we so quiet and so unhelpful to um a lot of people who who go through things that aren't physical um yeah and the link between the experience of going through cancer and mental health you obviously see that you would you would be infused in that firsthand Mm. What are what are some of the things that you you notice uh, with with the mental health or or the, or the deteriorating mental health or in that space? What does that look like? Um, I, it's so funny how we stigmatize mental health things. Like I think, you know, because of the history when it comes to mental health and asylums and the way that we talk about people and everything, you don't want to be associated with it. And I think that's a really sad thing. But I think um, for me, I never had any mental health problems or that many mental health problems, any that I had been acknowledged um, in my past. So um, having to deal with PTSD and to deal with trauma has, um, has been, you know, still, I'm still navigating it. It's all new to me, to be honest. I'm not, I don't have the answers for it. And, um, you know, I, I think anxiety is a huge thing. I mean, you find out you're going to die it's, or you could die, but it's pretty, scary thing so brings a whole new meaning to anxiety when it's anxiety around your own death and I guess that's a thought pattern that most people will end up going through but most not in their 20s um and and I think that even when people do go through it it's not something that is talked about so I guess Ricky maybe you could share some insight into you know before you were diagnosed and after you were diagnosed, um, how has your processing of death and cancer changed? Sure. Um, so I probably thought about cancer the way that you would have and the way that most people do um, in that it's sort of like this Voldemorty um, concept of like there's nothing possibly scarier um, to be told and that there's nothing worse in the world than cancer and that um, cancer is like a, a bad word almost like if you use it it's like whoa that was intense you know like you just don't talk about it it's just like too frightening to even acknowledge um, which which is why a lot of cancer people call um, non-cancer people cancer muggles like I don't know if you're into Harry Potter but, uh, but um, you know it's this whole concept of like people who haven't had cancer are so afraid to talk about it or so afraid of it um, and don't really understand what it is. Um, for a lot of people, like the minute they hear I have cancer, they're like, she's dying. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's what they see and that's what they hear and that's what I heard, you know. So 
um, it's it's a frightening thing. I mean, death is really scary. Um, whether and well, some people have come to terms with it, and some people aren't so afraid. And I know a lot of people who have bucket lists now because they, you know, know they're dying or, you know, they they changed their lifestyle all together. I I tried. I, I there's the the way I live now has been changed in many ways. I'm much more. I'm I'm not going to waste. I'm not going to waste my time not being careful if I know that I could be careful with my own health. I love that. Yeah, like it's so it's such a funny thing. Everyone, when you get cancer, everyone gives you advice on how to live your life. You know, eat more lettuce. Like mm. here's herbal medicine. Like like I have been told so many ways to get rid of my cancer or so many reasons that I would have caused my cancer even though science hasn't proven any reason that I would cause my own cancer but sorry but I you know for that reason you know people are like you know you didn't eat enough vegetables or you didn't you know cut out meat or whatever it is but no one talks with like no one goes up to a smoker and is like hey there do you know you could get lung cancer by just smoking that like it's you know but it's, it's funny that that is such a thing but you know, for me, you know, I don't smoke. I I wear sun cream every day because because um, we are Australia. Australians are the most common case of melanoma in the whole world, and um, our num- numbers are staggeringly high. And we don't really. And we have like, you know, we're we're posting selfies of us tanning at the beach when, frankly, like, you know, for me, melanoma is such a huge thing in Australia. And maybe it's because I've been exposed to my my gorgeous friend. But um, I think that you know, we are taught that to be tan, you look beautiful, you know, and we're teaching that to our, our kids and we're teaching that to young kids. And so for that reason, they're like tanning with their friends and, you know, not seeing the actual repercussions of that. You know, my friend's toe was amputated. Like that's, you know, she was, she was 18 on Kentucky when she found it. So like, why, why can't we just not feel invincible and just acknowledge, okay, that these are actual real things that happen to young people and to old people. And, you know, it's it's not worth it. Yeah. Just buy a twenty dollar bottle of spray tan. <laughs> yeah. When you get into a remission and you've mm. been able to, let's say, work through the cancer and let's say you're past the five year mark. Sure. Is there is there a possibility that, that, that in you know, the invincibility could ponder back? I think the invincibility could come back, but I think the way that I live my life is forever changed. I don't think I will ever stop wearing sun cream. I don't think I'll ever go back to tanning the way I did before. I think there was a cognitive dissidence before where, you know, I don't know if you know cognitive dissidence was a really great concept of like, know something like it's sort of a denial of something you know to be true because it doesn't, you either change what you know to be true to suit the way you want to live your life or you change the things you know to be true. It's, it's, it's like bargaining yeah yeah so you might know you could die from melanoma but you're just not gonna uh, align your your thought process to that because it doesn't suit the behavior of tanning so I'm gonna tan and not acknowledge that there's a threat even though right you know um because because it's not otherwise convenient yeah yeah exactly um and there was a beautiful way to put it I read in the other the other day um was like it was like in other words lying to yourself <laughs> you know yeah. true. And, and there's so many things yeah. we do to lie to ourselves um and I'm sure that I will do the same things but there's things like I know I'll always wear sun cream I know that's for sure and I'll always be an advocate for for doing so yeah yeah with all the absolute randomness that's involved with cancer 
take control of what you can. And I guess that brings me to our last question, which we like to ask all guests when we wrap up. And that question is, if it were your last day on earth, Ricky, what would you be doing and how would you be spending it? Um, so when I um, finished my treatment, I was so desperate to put everyone I love into one room and just party, you know. So I did. I did that. And I, I actually pushed off my 21st because I was sick and I was like, fuck this. I'm not celebrating it if I can't dance because I was just not well enough. So I moved my birthday from March to June and um, I called it like a post-cancer 21st. It was Studio 54. And... Um, <laughs> We just literally boogied all night. And for me, just like being surrounded by the people I love and happy. It's been one of my, it's one of my favorite memories um, of all time, I think, for me. And I think um, if I could put everyone I loved, even the dead people, even the live people, yeah, like yeah. cancer chicks, the non-cancer chicks, like everyone, if I yeah. put them into one room and just like spend the whole day with them and party and, you know, just have amazing conversations and say my goodbyes like that would be the best for me um and put some like chocolate strawberries and stuff like that there because I love I love a good feast you can give me some schnitty whatever but <laughs> like it's probably not the most romantic of answers but it's true like yeah, people food and conversations that's what's like yeah yeah and like if I don't get a chance to do that I love if people did that after my life which who's hoping is in uh, 90 years or whatever but that would be a really great way to commemorate it because I'd like to be like Natasha too and just celebrate it rather than um, pitied and sad and people feeling sorry for themselves. I'd rather them remember um, remember the time they had fun, you know? Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And Rick, do you have any last comments, anything to say that you don't feel like we covered, maybe something to say to someone who is going through cancer or has a loved one going through cancer? Um. I would like to say, firstly, thank you for giving me this platform. I feel like I have a lot of things um, to say that could help a lot of people or just um, teach them about people with cancer or life they think they should know because that's what I didn't know once. Um, when it comes to what to say to someone who hasn't got cancer but knows someone with cancer, um, is just kindness never hurt anyone. You. Um, you know, you, there's not much you could, you know, it doesn't matter how awkward or how wrong what you're trying to say to them is, whether it's, you know, like, hey, I'm sorry that you have cancer or whatever it is, even if it comes out awkward or wrong or whatever, the fact that you tried means a lot to us. And whatever you did, you know, just trying to make us happy in whatever way it is or, or know that we're cared for is really important because so often um, you choose not to just because it's too scary. And I understand that and we, we understand that. So we're not going to hold it against you, but it would mean a lot if you do acknowledge it and try to say that you care. Um, and to cancer people, join Cancer Chicks and ask your questions because I'm there to answer it. And we're all here to answer it. Um, and just know that you're going to learn a lot from this and that you come out the other side um, and be a better person than you were before it. And yeah, I'd say, I'd say that that would be my biggest take. Um, How would they get in touch with you, Ricky? 
How do they find oh, your group? Okay. My Instagram is cancerchicksau. Um, my Facebook group, if you have cancer or are related to cancer, please join Cancer Chicks AU. And what about you? To contact me privately? Oh, you can, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm Ricky Stern, R-I-K-K-I-S-T-E-R-N. Uh, or you can message me on Facebook or you can email Cancer Chicks AU or you can email rickystern.net at gmail.com. There you go. <laughs> that was Making Sense of Chaos, a podcast about death, Dying, love, grief, and hope. Produced by Maddie Bragel and Jason Wheel. Thank you for listening. 